It is... Oh, that's really lovely. Um, it is a real joy and a privilege to be here opening God's Word with you, and so I, I trust um, that it will be a valuable time. Um, I have spoiled my intro, and I considered changing it to talk about a ball I caught yesterday, but instead I'll, I'll stick to it because I think it's a nice story. Um, last week, uh, I watched a young person step into a pool, drop below the surface of the water, and then stand back up and walk out of that pool. A seemingly uneventful and meaningless moment when I tell it like that. It's something that might happen any day, any number of times, without great significance. But when I give you some more detail and a bit of context, that moment comes into sharp and beautiful meaning. Because it wasn't a swimming pool, uh, but it was a baptismal pool. As this young person confessed their faith in Jesus and symbolically joined him in his death and resurrection. It was a beautiful and rich public testimony as they showed that they had given their life to Jesus. And this person wasn't just anyone, but was a student from the Arimba campus on which I serve. A student who I'd been meeting with each week to read the Bible. A student who had been wrestling with a faith that they had claimed by name but not held true in their own heart for years. A student who just three months ago, when I asked them, what brings you joy, told me nothing. A student who now is finding greater and greater joy in the love that our Heavenly Father has shown them in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So that story is so much richer, isn't it? It's no longer everyday and insignificant, but a story of beauty that points to the goodness and faithfulness of our great God. I won't lie, I cried last week, um, but I'm a bit of a crier, so maybe that's not a big deal. Uh, but as we come to Psalm 117 this morning, we're going to take, I think, a similar journey. Upon first reading, it seems very straightforward. And perhaps, dare I say it, a little bit dull. An invitation for all people and all nations to glorify God because of His love and faithfulness to us, right? Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love towards us and the faithfulness of our Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. It sounds like the kind of thing the Bible would say, right? Tick, great, move on. Uh, which, if you've ever read through the Psalms yourself, which I, I trust you're doing with that three-year plan, which I think is beautiful and wonderful, I love that, maybe that was your approach to this Psalm. Great, tick, move on. But as we slow down, as we look closer at the details, as we read this Psalm in the context of where it sits in our whole Bibles, I think we're going to hear a far more beautiful song. This morning, uh, I hope that we're going to see how the beautiful story of the Bible means that this is a beautiful song for all people to sing. Because God's faithfulness is good for all nations. And so we're going to start with a bit of a closer look. Um, to begin with, as you look at a psalm like this, uh, we don't have any of that additional information that you sometimes get with the psalms about when it was written or who by um, perhaps this psalm was written during the high point of Israel's history under King David or King Solomon. It's unclear. 
But what we know for certain is, is it was definitely sung by later Israel. It was part of their songbook here in our Psalter. It was sung through their years in exile. And it's a song that was certainly sung in the New Testament period, um, around Pentecost, um, the celebration of the Exodus. This was one of the Psalms that Jesus and his disciples would have sung at the Last Supper, as they sang joyfully through Psalms 113 to 118. Throughout each of those kind of periods I've just pointed to, who were the other nations this psalm invites to praise God? Well, David and Solomon, it's, it's the Philistines and the Edomites. In exile, it's the Assyrians and Babylonians. In the, it becomes the Persians and later the Greeks. These were all nations who were enemies of God's people. They were nations defeated in war by David. Nations who oppressed Israel in their exile. Nations who ruled Israel's land in the New Testament times. And yet these are the very nations being invited to worship not their own gods, but Israel's God. Even more outrageous, though, I think, than that invitation is the reason this psalm gives for them to join in that worship. Praise the Lord, extol Him, O enemy nations, because His steadfast love for us is great. His faithfulness endures forever. Did you see that? It is His love to us. Not His love to you, not you, the other nations, not His love to the world, not His love for all peoples, but His love for us, for Israel, as they sang. It sounds arrogant. It sounds absurd, intolerant. Hey, you, you people who hate us, you should honour our God because He loves us. It's ridiculous. In the ancient world of Israel, this might as well be an invitation to war. And I think this accusation of intolerance is heard even louder today. We live in a cultural moment where the governing reality is that of personal truth and of tolerance. Anyone can believe whatever they want. Follow your own truth as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. Our world invites people to express their inner self, fulfill your inner desires, pursue true authenticity. We live in a world for whom the gospel message the faithfulness of our God to us is not only strange or outdated, but is often considered dangerous and harmful. And so this seemingly innocuous little psalm, when we pay attention to the details, I think challenges us with all of these questions. How on earth could Israel sing this psalm? How on earth can we sing this psalm? And brothers and sisters, the answer to that comes, I think, as we see and explore the broader, richer, truly beautiful narrative of God's unfolding story. And so this morning, our plan, we're going to look backwards to see how God's faithful love to Israel was good for the nations. Then we'll look to Christ to see that God's faithfulness to Jesus is good for the nations. And then look forward 
to see how God's faithful love to us is good for the nations. And then we'll finish with some reflections on how we, as 21st century Christians, how we can sing this psalm well, all for God's glory. So our first step this morning is to look backwards. And we're going to see God's faithful love to Israel was indeed good for the other nations. And to do that, we're going to start by going a fair bit back, right to the very start of God's rescue plan for creation in Genesis chapter 12. You'll remember, I trust, before we get there, roughly what's happened up to that point in the Bible story. God had made all of creation and it was good. It reached its pinnacle in the creation of humankind. These creatures made to be in God's image, to rule his creation in his place, to tend and extend the garden he had put them in with everything that they needed to flourish in relationship with him. And yet humankind, of course, rebelled. Adam and Eve disobeyed God, wanting to be like God themselves, obeying the serpent rather than subduing creation. And they're evicted. And in the following chapters, as you read through Genesis, it gets worse and worse until God, seeing that the wickedness of man was great in all the earth, that every intention and thought of his heart was only evil all the time, he hit the reset button, sending a mighty flood, yet rescuing Noah and his family from whom all nations would descend. Only for those people, once again, to seek to become like God. They build a tower to the heavens. They want to make a name for themselves. So God, once again, brings just judgment. He scatters them. He confuses their language. And so as we get to approach Genesis 12, things look pretty bad for the nations. It's bad and messy and awful and sin runs rampant. In the place of fruitful multiplication, families fall barren, death is coming for all people. And then we hit Genesis 12, where in the first three verses we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, who will later be renamed Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God steps in and makes huge promises to Abraham. Promises of land, of abundance, of children who will form a great nation. Promises that will shape the narrative of the rest of the Bible as God works towards their fulfillment. Promises that culminate in that final phrase, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's promises are not only good for Abraham and his family, but for all peoples across all of time. Everyone in God's fallen and broken world will have the opportunity to experience blessing through Abraham, as long as God is faithful to his promises. And faithful he is. Over time, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they grow into that nation of Israel. Um, Through Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph, you might know, Egypt, they get saved from this famine. Um, As Israel get ready to enter the promised land, God gives them laws on how they should live, laws that express 
not hatred, but deep concern for the foreigner among them. And as Israel reached their peak under King Solomon, the blessing to the nations shines bright. In 1 Kings 4, we read that people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. All these nations experiencing blessing through God's people. As Solomon prays to dedicate the temple, this meeting place where God will dwell with his people, he says, 1 Kings 8, When a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Solomon prays this beautiful request for the nations to come to Israel, to come to the temple, a request that God would answer prayers, not just of his own people, but the prayers of all who come to him. Because God, dwelling with his people, ought to be a gift to all nations who would turn to him. And perhaps the most vibrant example of blessing to the nations through Israel comes in chapter 10 of 1 Kings. The queen of Sheba comes to experience Solomon's wisdom, to be blessed by his prosperity. And she declares in verse 9, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. God has been faithful to his people and blessing is flowing not just to his people, but to all the nations. I wonder if any of you remember learning about the water cycle in school at some point. I don't, but that's okay. I looked it up. Uh, Water, it condenses into clouds. And and then as those clouds approach the mountains, they pushed higher and colder and the water condenses into droplets and it falls on the mountains, right? And then that water forms into streams and, and rivers and it takes refreshment and nutrients and life down onto the plains below, nourishing fields and farms so that they can grow and flourish. And I think that's a bit of the picture of what Israel's supposed to be like. As God rains his blessing upon them as his mountains, if you will, those blessings were to trickle, to flow, to flood down to the other nations around them. As all that God gives them, not nitrogen and phosphorus that's apparently good for plants, I don't know, but abundance and wisdom and rich relationship with God. These blessings that the nation of Israel was to offer to all around, to invite them, taste and see that the Lord is good. When we look backwards, we see that God's faithful love to the people of Israel was indeed good for the nations. Because in his faithful love, he remained true to his promises. Promises to bless all the families of earth through his own holy people. And bless he did, with abundance and with wisdom and with relationship with him, the one true living God.
And so praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his faithful love to Israel. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. A wise teacher once told me that a helpful tool to unlock the Psalms is to listen as Jesus reads them. And so I want us to read this psalm with Jesus, to look to Christ and to see that God's faithfulness to Jesus is good for the nations. Because you see, it's, we see God's faithfulness to Jesus most vividly and richly in the resurrection. That is where God's faithfulness to him shines brightest. Uh, Paul tells us that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Had God allowed Jesus to remain dead, it would have been a demonstration that his death was not effective and we were left in our sins because we're told if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But God didn't leave Jesus in the grave. God remained faithful. And so Peter, in his Pentecost sermon, he points to Psalm 16. He tells us, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, that is David, King David, that he, he God, would set one of his, David's, descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. The resurrection shows God had been, has been faithful to all of his promises of what he would do in and through Jesus. Because all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. And we get a glimpse, I think, at, at so much, and yet somehow still not all, of the breadth and depth of that blessing in Ephesians 1 that was read for us earlier. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. As you read through the chapter, it's just this kind of overflow again and again of things that we are blessed with. We are chosen, holy and blameless before Him. We're predestined for adoption. We have redemption through His blood. We're forgiven our trespasses. The mystery of His will is made known to us. We get an inheritance. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. All of these things, all to the praise of His glory and grace. And many commentators will make the observation that throughout this chapter, Paul speaks mostly about us, only referring to a you at the end. He's most likely drawing this Jew-Gentile distinction. God has blessed us, Paul says, us Jewish believers with all of these wonderful things. But remember our psalm, God's faithful love to Israel, to the Jewish nation, to Jesus, is good for all nations. Which is why in Ephesians 2, Paul takes us to the glorious truth that now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, and so make peace. By God's faithfulness to Jesus, faithfulness that carried Jesus through death on the cross and through to his glorious resurrection from the dead, we who are Gentiles, the nations, are brought near. These two separate humanities who have been distinct for centuries, Jews, inheritors of God's promises, Gentiles separate from Him, are brought together in one new humanity to share in the inheritance of all of those wonderful blessings poured out in chapter 1. All that God had promised His people throughout all of history, now available to all who would trust in Jesus and be united to Him by faith. One of uh, the beautiful things I think we see here, um, this uh, as a rich motivator for the praise of all nations, is this kind of transformation of expectation that we get through God's we, we see in God's faithfulness to Jesus. Because in the Old Testament, where God had promised blessing to the nations through Abraham, that blessing so often sounded very earthy and material. Yes, there, were, there was wisdom. Yes, there was invitation to relationship with God. But often it seemed to primarily be about prosperity, about physical safety, about health and wealth. But in Christ, as God fulfills His promises, He does that in far more wondrous ways. A popular illustration you might have heard, and I think it's popular for good reason. I want you to imagine for a moment, you're a young person at the turn of the 20th century, late 1800s, for people who struggle with that maths like me. You're nearing adulthood, and your father promises you a fine horse and cart. You'll be able to travel with ease and comfort thanks to this mighty steed. You dream of what it'll be like. Chestnut fur, a golden mane, beautiful stained mahogany with sturdy iron wheels. But as you reach adulthood, Henry Ford has come along and created the Model T, and instead your father gifts you a brand new automobile. You'd been looking forward to the fulfillment of promise. You'd had visions of what it would be like. But when the time comes, it's not what you expect. It's so much more. More horsepower. More comfort. More ease. More safety, perhaps. I don't know how safe the Model T was. You wouldn't be disappointed that it wasn't what you You'd be thrilled. This is so much better than anything you'd hoped and dreamed. So it is with the promises of God. The expectations of God's Old Testament people were so earthy because those were the terms accessible to the people to explain all that God was going to do. But in Christ, those promises are cranked up far beyond the here and now. In Christ, God promises, God's promises find their fulfillment in the offer of eternal relationship. Complete forgiveness. Adoption into family with our loving Heavenly Father for eternity. Because of God's faithful love to Jesus, Christ was raised from the dead. 
and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is now on offer for people of all nations, all who would trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and become one humanity under Christ. Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love towards Jesus Christ. The faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Now, thirdly, I want us to look forward, to look to the future and to see that God's faithfulness to us, believers today, is still good for the nations. Because remember that in Christ, God has made even more promises to us. Jesus promised that we would be his mouthpieces in sharing his gospel. He promised to be with us to the very end of the age. Jesus promised that in this life we would have tribulation, suffering and hardship as we seek to follow him in a world that doesn't know him. But he also promised to return and to make all things new. And so come with me, if you will, to Romans 8. In Romans 8, we read this absolutely beautiful section from verse 18. It's going to be on the screen as well. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is, is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with patience. In this section here, Paul takes our vision forward to the day when Jesus fulfills his promise to return and tells us that our present sufferings, all the heartache and brokenness of our world, all the struggles and pain And sadness, none of it will be even able to compare to the glory that will be revealed. All who trust in Jesus will have our broken bodies redeemed, our adoption into God's family made clear. And it's not just us, right? All of creation will be released from bondage. Everything around us, every day that has been marred by human sin, The entire cosmos that has been groaning as if in labor will be unveiled in full glory just as we will be. To be everything God has always intended his good creation to be. To bring glory and honor to him forevermore. And we get a little picture of just what this unbound creation will be like. As God fulfills his promises to us in Christ for Jesus to return, make all things new, we turn to Revelation when all these spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ are made manifest, that down payment of the Holy Spirit paid off in full. 
In Revelation 21, from verse 3, John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And if you turn the page, this picture keeps going. In chapter 22, uh, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, and on either side of the river, the tree of life, With twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will have no need of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. This beautiful, incredible picture of a world freed from sin. And who's going to be there? Who's going to get to experience all of this? Well, we're told back in chapter 7. John looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. From all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches, crying out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What could be better for the nations than the faithful love of God? The love of a God who keeps promises like this. Promises to make all things new and good and right. Promises to undo all the damage of human sin and to live with his people for all eternity with gentleness and compassion and strength. I think as I often do about Lord of the Rings. As Aragorn and his company in The Two Towers... I'm real. I've, I'm distracting myself straight away. I'm realizing probably less people have seen Lord of the Rings as I get older, which is a terrifying thought. But anyway... Um, As Aragorn and company, they head to Helm's Deep with the people of Rohan. They ride with a promise from Gandalf. Look to my coming on the first light of the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. And as the battle rages down in Helm's Deep, the forces of evil encroach upon the Hornburg. Man and elf alike are facing death and destruction. It's then Gandalf returns. As the sun rises Evil is defeated. Salvation is brought to those nations who had gathered there in the shadows of the White Mountains. It's a victory that will turn the tide in the War of the Ring and contribute to that final rescue of all the peoples of Middle-earth from the reign of Sauron. The return of Jesus, just as he'd promised, it's going to bring about not just this single victory in some great war, but the complete defeat of evil for all time and bring salvation for people from every single nation. Though it must be said, these promises, all promises, require acceptance 
from the one being promised. You see, if a friend promises to meet me at a certain time and place, and if I don't trust them and go there myself, I will fail to receive what's been promised. I won't enjoy time with that friend. So it is with the promises of God. We do not work to earn them, but we must accept them. Remember, if you will, towards the end of our reading in Ephesians 1, when is it that we receive all of these spiritual blessings in Christ, all God's promises? When does that start in our lives? It's when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. And so as we consider the nations that this psalm invites to praise the Lord, how can they hear unless a preacher is sent? How can they believe until they have heard? And so what a gift it is to the nations that Jesus would promise us to be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That the gospel may be heard and that people of all tribes and tongues and languages may be saved as they put their faith in the Lord Jesus who died for them. What better reason could the nations have to praise God for his faithfulness to us? Because what could be better than the complete abolition and removal of all sin and its consequences? And the salvation of all who would trust in the name of Jesus. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. And so, to land this plane that has flown pretty quickly over pretty much the whole Bible story... I want us to spend a bit of time thinking about what it would look like to sing this psalm well. This is a song for God's people to read and to sing and to embody. They are not empty platitudes for us to stick on our wall, but words to embed in our hearts and lives that sticking them on your wall might help with. That's, don't hear me having a go at that. I've got Philippians on my wall at home. I love it. Anyway, and so I have two things that I want to point us to for singing Psalm 117 well. First of all, quite simply, it's to do as it says. Uh, The psalm is a call to praise and glorify the Lord, to extol Him for His steadfast love and faithfulness. And as we've flown over the pages of Scripture, I hope you've got a taste of the depth and breadth and rich consistency of God's faithful love to His people. The grandiosity of His promises And his determination to keep them, often in more glorious terms than they were originally uttered. God is always at work for the good of those who love him. He has poured out every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places upon us. And he will glorify us and redeem our broken bodies in the renewal of all things when Jesus returns. God has kept his promises and he will yet keep them still. And so we ought to praise Him each and every day of our eternal lives that have already begun. We ought to join together with God's people as we're doing this morning to hear His Word, to sing praises to Him, to encourage one another and push one another on to love and good deeds 
with the words of truth that point one another to the glory and beauty of our great God. We ought to come to Him in prayer to unleash the adoration of our hearts towards our Heavenly Father who delights to hear our prayers. We ought to be living our lives in response to the gospel, presenting our whole bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, our true spiritual worship. And the words of this psalm invite us to praise God for His steadfast love. And so praise Him we should, individually, corporately, constantly. But the psalm isn't just an invitation to us, of course, is it? As we've seen again and again, it's an invitation to all nations to experience the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. To experience the blessings He has promised to pour out through His people, through Christ. Blessings that extend from now into eternity. And so as we sing, we ought to be inviting others to join our song. To taste and to see that the Lord is good. It's a song that really ought to drive us to evangelism. To faithful gospel proclamation. To sharing the good news of the steadfast love of God with all who will listen. As an invitation to all nations, well, it begins with our nation, doesn't it? We all have neighbours, have friends, co-workers, classmates, all of them who are lost without the saving blessings of our faithful God found in Christ. People who unknowingly are in desperate need of joining in our song so that they too may be found around the throne of the Lamb, singing of the salvation that belongs to Him. And through Christ, we have the words of eternal life, the promises of God that He will keep because of His steadfast love and faithfulness. And so we need to be taking opportunities to share the gospel, to love our friends and neighbours that they might be willing to hear the source of that love, the steadfast love God has shown us in Christ. We need to be taking what opportunities we have to be trained, to build our confidence in the hope that we have, so that we might be willing to cross that pain line and risk speaking up when opportunities arise. We need to be a brightly lit city upon a hill, not a lamp hidden under a basket. Because our God is faithful to His promises. Promises to save and promises to judge. And so proclaim the gospel we must. But that invitation too must extend to all nations. And we can take part in that invitation in so many ways. Uh, In prayer and finances. As we partner with missionaries around the globe seeking to reach the 8 billion people who live on this planet, 3.4 billion of whom have no access to a church or a Christian or the gospel. We also have opportunities as God brings the nations here. 20% of people on the Central Coast have both parents or themselves born overseas. God is bringing the nations to us. 
And so we have the great privilege of stepping outside our comfort zones to cross cultures, to sing this song of invitation to the nations, to put their trust in God who is love. Or perhaps even you might be one who goes, who leaves your home to sing this song to those around our world who need to hear it. Because our God will keep His promises. He has in the past. He will in the future. And there is no other name under heaven by which they can be saved than the name of Jesus Christ, in whom we have been given every spiritual blessing. As one commentator concluded their reflections on this psalm, they said, The shortest psalm proves, in fact, to be one of the most potent and most seminal. And I think he's right. And so praise the Lord all nations. Extol him all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your steadfast love and faithfulness, that in the rich abundance of your promises, you have kept and will keep them. That through us, your people, through the Lord Jesus, you are bringing blessing to the whole world and all who would trust in him. And so, Father, help us to praise you, to reflect daily on your generosity and faithfulness and to speak wonderful truths of who you are back to you, to give you our whole lives in honour and worship. And Father, use us to invite the nations as well. Use us to speak the gospel faithfully to friends and workmates and classmates, to the nations you have brought to us and perhaps even to the nations you might send us to. Use us to proclaim your gospel, to see many, many saved, that more and more may join our song in praise and worship of you for all you have done. Amen.